more technology. In fact, I probably need somebody to raise this for me because I'll mess it up. <laughs> I'm at that age where, you know, it's never the right distance. Do I wear the glasses? Do I not wear the glasses? I would love to share a song with you that I learned years and years ago, um, but I never realized how much I would grow to depend on the words of this particular song.
old now, so I need notes. <laughs> Have you ever suffered a loss that you just couldn't seem to recover from? Have you ever wondered how emotional wounds received in childhood might be affecting your adult life? Have you ever struggled with self-worth and wondered if God could really love you? These are issues I've wrestled with for a long time, and recently God has shown me some insight that I'd really like to share with you. When I was pursuing my operatic career back in New York City, I was trained that the manner in which a professional opera singer presents themselves should always be a reflection of the rarefied and elevated art form for which we are ambassadors. So it was very important to me that I put my best foot forward the first time I sang for my home church in Salem, Oregon. I um, arrived for a brief rehearsal before the first service, and I noticed that the carpet in the sanctuary was covered with teeny little shards of something black that I didn't stop to identify. As the first service began, I was standing in the wings, just out of sight of the congregation, when suddenly the heels of my well-worn and well-loved shoes quite literally collapsed out from underneath me, and I nearly fell backwards. All those tiny black shards littering the church floor that I couldn't understand why someone hadn't vacuumed were parts of my shoes that had been disintegrating. I was the one littering the church. There was a lesson right there on criticism. So there I am standing in the wings hoping to be a refined ambassador of professional song when I had to go and stand in front of 900 people barefoot without even a moment to explain why. I never could have imagined that putting my best foot forward would end up being a naked foot. So much for the elegant professional from New York. But I do have to say, it was one of the most freeing experiences I've ever had. Doesn't Jesus tell us in the book of Matthew, don't worry about what you wear. And so I didn't. In cleaning out a closet recently, I found some old family photos and started to reminisce about my childhood. I was raised in, I think, what was a pretty typical home in Southern California. Nice house in a nice area. We had a pool in the backyard. Lots of pets, cats, dogs, hamsters, turtles. And yearly trips to Pismo Beach at the Seacrest Motel where we would have our summer vacation. My parents were reliable and dependable and very well liked in the community. And yet, I sensed that something wasn't quite right. Later in life, I learned that both of my parents had been raised by violently abusive alcoholic fathers. And... That left a permanent mark on mom and dad's ability to express love. Consequently, neither one of my parents ever developed the capacity to give me, an adopted child, what I needed the most. The physical affection and the verbal affirmation to reassure me that my life mattered. 
the normal cuddling and holding and roughhousing and touching that most children experience with their families did not exist in our home. I desperately needed someone to hold me tight and tell me that I was loved and cherished. But my parents just couldn't do it. What is she doing? Oh, this can't be right. What's wrong with her? Why is she doing this? I know. If I just pretend to be asleep, maybe she'll stop. During my childhood, receiving affectionate touch was so infrequent that during a sleepover when my beloved grandmother wrapped her arms around me for a pre-dawn snuggle in the bed we shared, I had no idea what to make of it. You guys, I did not know that physical affection was normal. My mother was not a mean person. And I know that she never meant to hurt me, and I believe that if she ever knew that she had hurt me, it would have destroyed her. But the truth is her severe clinical depression and numerous emotional disorders drove her to manipulate others into getting her needs met. April 9th, 1992. Dearest Marsha, I don't understand. How could you want more space when I want less space? You are not well. How could you do such a thing to me? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Who is making you do this? Are you on drugs? What you're doing is wrong. I adopted you when you had nowhere to go, and I expect to get something out of it. Your life belongs to me, and you can't have it. Signed, your mother. I received, I received that letter from my mom after explaining that as an adult, I needed the time and space to attend to my own interests and my own career pursuits and my own life and that I could no longer continue spending every single weekend keeping her company. Reading this letter convinced me that no matter how much of my time and energy and love and effort I gave my mother to convince her of my love for her, it would never be enough to fill her never-ending need for security, a need resulting from a childhood filled with violence and abuse thank you so much for the tickets you've worked so hard for this and we are so proud of you congratulations you did a great job those were the words i was hoping to hear as my parents and i shared an hour-long drive home after an operatic performance for which i had arranged house seats for them so mom and dad could be with me the very first time I sang my itty-bitty first operatic role for an audience of 3,000 people in one of the top 10 opera companies in North America. But on the way home, mom and dad discussed chores that needed to be done the next day, and neither one of my parents ever even acknowledged 
I had been in the same building. That lack of response to my life and my interest and my gifts became a theme throughout my life. In 30 years, mom and dad only came to hear me sing five or six times. My mother could not be supportive of my dreams because of her fear that music would take me away from her, and that was a threat to her security. In my mother's 88 years, she never uttered a single syllable, and I do mean that literally, not one syllable to acknowledge my interest in music or my ability. I've always been very grateful for my father's amazing financial support to pursue my dreams, but at the time when I was younger, that was a love language popular years and years ago that I did not understand. I was hoping that someday Dad would become interested in my musical life, but when I told him that instead of singing opera, I would be traveled traveling to sing for congregations all over the country, he looked puzzled and said, what's the draw? Why would anybody come? As an adult, I do know intellectually that my parents loved me, but I've always hoped that someday I would hear them say, well done. We're so proud of you, but I never did. And now that they're both gone, I never will. Understanding the horror my parents survived in childhood helped me appreciate their limitations and gave me great compassion for their sorrow. But unfortunately, it did nothing to heal the sense of loss I have always felt. There's no graceful way to write into a script, drink water here. Now, I need to share some things with you that might convince you I'm a little bit weird, a little out there. And I'll own that because from time to time I've kind of thought that about myself. But I cannot fully explain what has happened in my life without being completely transparent regarding a couple of unusual experiences I have had with the Lord God communicates with his children in a variety of different ways, through scripture, through Bible study, through prayer, through the counsel of wise friends and wise pastors. And for some, it's seeing images like the apostles Peter and John experienced. I can be very stubborn, and I don't hear God when he whispers. To get through to me, God needs to communicate in dramatic ways just to get my attention. I am a visual learner, and that is most frequently how God communicates with me, by showing me images in in what feels like a movie screen on the inside of my head. And because my life has changed so dramatically in the last few years, I no longer question whether I'm a crazy person. I really do believe that those images are directly from God. I, I, I couldn't move. I tried several times to lift my head off the pillow, but there was a hand pushing my head back down. 
in what seemed like a movie screen communicating an image to my soul, I saw Jesus. I saw the back of him standing in a white robe and kind of a nubby, like a handmade fabric. And he was holding up a sword and doing battle with something or someone I couldn't see. And without turning to look at me, he reached around behind him and put his fingers on my forehead and pushed my head back on the pillow and said, don't get in my way. Well, those words are extremely significant to me because before I stand on any platform or stage, the very last thing I say is, Lord God, help me get out of the way. That particular day, I had stretched out on my bed to take a quick rest while I listened to some borrowed music and a song about Abraham sacrificing his pride and joy hit so close to home that it convinced me God was no longer suggesting ministry. He was insisting upon it. In my panic, I tried to get up and turn the CD player off, but I couldn't raise my head off the pillow. As the song continued, I perceived what was wind and water coming together in the air and hitting my chest with the force of a sword being thrust into someone's heart. It, it felt like Jesus was using the music, a language I could understand, to open my heart and pour himself into me almost in a physical sense. And his presence blew away like feathers in the wind any remnant of my own career agenda or desires. To my absolute shock, I came out of this experience with an absolute intense desire to pursue ministry and no particular interest in following up with my operatic studies. Jesus revealed himself in such a powerful way that not only was I willing to give up opera, I was absolutely convinced that I would be willing to march through hell to introduce that Jesus to just one person. Marsha, you need to grieve. What? Marsha. Oh, Marsha, you need to grieve. I'm confused, Lord. What is it that I'm supposed to grieve? I was on such an emotional high that I was forgetting about what my future was about to look like. Professionals in my field were so convinced that I would be making eight to $10,000 per night for singing operatic roles in the capitals of Europe that I was even advised on which particular luggage to purchase that could hold up to the constant rigors of travel. But shortly after my encounter with Jesus, my first three international contracts fell apart due to political and financial unrest in Argentina and Venezuela. And my beloved vocal instructor moved out of the country to live with his family. And my father called and said, your mother's in a wheelchair now. Is there any way you could come home? We really need you. As it became abundantly clear that God was redefining my vocal career, I found myself drowning in a tidal wave 
of sorrow. I was unable to do anything but lie flat on my back in bed and sob uncontrollably 24 hours a day for an entire week. At one point, a sudden pain in my chest convinced me I might be having a heart attack, but I couldn't reach my phone to dial 911. And I remember crying out to the Lord saying, God, am I dying? And to my everlasting shock, my soul heard him say, yes, you are. I knew that God was helping me die to my own my own desires so I could make room in my life for his. As I started to recover emotionally, a pronounced weakness in my neck was diagnosed as whiplash. Whiplash? When the doctor asked if I had been through a recent trauma, (laughs) I I nearly laughed out loud. After explaining my week in bed, the doctor concluded that crying so hard for so long had literally stripped all the muscles in my throat and my neck that hold up my head. But what really blew my mind was his definition, and I will never forget this as long as I live. Whiplash, he said, is the physical result of a very sudden and unexpected change in direction. Why? Why would God deny me the only thing in life I have ever wanted? Were all those years of vocal training just a complete waste of my life? Is this ministry of singing for churches and sharing testimony just some kind of a consolation prize? These are questions that have plagued me for years. And perhaps you have unanswered questions about your lives. Why? I think we all do. After I started sharing my story with local congregations, I became very good at convincing everyone that I was really, really happy and well-adjusted to my new life. I was certain that God had directed me to pursue ministry, but I was unable to completely let go of the future in opera that I thought he had been designing from the beginning. It, It felt like I was living with one foot in each world, And that started to make me feel broken. Every morning started with the same question. Why? I think it's perfectly normal for us to ask why as we grieve a loss. And I think it's really, really okay to be completely broken for a time. But I was starting to suspect that something deep inside was so badly wounded that I was not capable of recovery no matter how hard I tried. The Dominican Republic is one of those countries that is a tourist destination for a lot of Americans. There is so much beauty in the tropical beaches and the landscape and even in the architecture of the old colonial city. But when you travel off the beaten path where most of the people actually live, 
the contrast is really startling. As we try
Okay. You know you're comfortable with family when the song starts and what's going through your mind is, please, Lord God, give me spit. (laughs) What does Jesus look like? What do we assume about Jesus based on the stoic, somewhat aloof images we see in artwork and films, especially the films of the last mid-century? For the longest time, that is how I saw Jesus, kind of serious, a little bit sad, a little bit too much detached. Sometimes art can form permanent images in our mind, and sometimes it takes art to break through and show us things differently. For me, that art was a movie called The Visual Bible, The Gospel of Matthew. The depiction of Jesus in that film was totally different than anything I've ever seen. He was a man filled with joy who smiled easily and laughed often and took great delight in all those around him. He was a man who expressed love with deep affection. As an adult, I've always known that or intellectually understood that Jesus loves me because, well, he's God and he kind of has to. But it never occurred to me that he might actually like me, that he might actually take delight in who I am. And as I contemplated that particular possibility, God intervened in my life in a very unexpected way. The worship pastor at my home church, you know, the one I littered with dissolving shoes, had the unusual idea of incorporating one of my operatic arias into a worship service. Okay, please please don't, I just saw a couple of faces. Please don't panic. I'm not going to sing anything operatic today. Um, I was intrigued but not convinced by this opera at church plan, which was I would open the service with my signature aria because the translation fit the sermon series, and then I would close the service by singing Give Me Jesus. I tried to find a graceful way to say no thank you because, well, frankly, Operatic music was the music I was trying to divorce myself from. And let's face it, opera is not an art form appreciated or even understood by very many people. And I was actually convinced I could see it in my head that my congregation were here the first, would hear the first sentence in Italian, rise as one person, and go screaming for the exits. But... As we all learned in the movie, The Devil Wears Prada, the greatest line ever, I girded my loins and said, okay, trusting that the worship pastor had not completely lost her mind. As I sang Give Me Jesus for the last service, I remembered the deeply affectionate Christ from the film that meant so much to me, and I became utterly overwhelmed with love for him. I tried to show Jesus the depth of my love with the only things available to me in that moment, my brokenness and the song I was singing. And this is an incredibly intimate thing to talk about out loud, but the truth is I tried to imagine easing the pain Jesus was feeling by ministering 
to the wounds on his head with the gentleness and caress of each phrase that I sang. And suddenly, I found myself at the end of the song, not knowing for certain if I had even sung all three verses. And when I opened my eyes, I felt just a little bit startled to realize that I was still standing in front of the congregation. As I stepped off the platform, a deep, deep place in my core felt very different. As if my cellular structure had been taken apart, rearranged, and put back together. Because I am so visual, I asked God to show me a picture of what had happened. And in that movie screen I see in my mind, I saw Jesus wade out into the center of a very deep but narrow stream that cut a meandering path through a flat, dry desert landscape. And he reached way down into the water, so the water was up to his ear. And he pulled up two enormous root balls, knotted tree roots, and, and debris and dirt and filth and garbage. And he threw them up onto the bank. And as he threw the second one up, he said, These were too deep for you to reach. Then the stream became a a free-flowing river, no longer constricted by old garbage, and the desert landscape became lush and green and beautiful. Those gnarled tree roots represented wounds so deep inside my soul that no effort on my part could ever have resulted in relief. Jesus healed pain I had become so used to living with, I didn't even know it existed. Days later, it finally dawned on me that that bizarre new feeling in my core that I couldn't identify was actually lack of pain. Isaiah 43, 18 and 19 has taken on a whole new meaning for me. Forget the former things, and do not dwell on the past. Look, I'm doing a new thing. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. As a little girl, I grew up with the firm belief that the reason my parents never touched me was entirely my fault, that something deep inside my soul was so badly soiled and defective that people could sense it and not want to get close enough to me to touch me. That something about me was so unlovable that even my birth mother was forced to give me away for adoption at seven days old. I came to consider that damaged place in the core of my being as the black spot. I remembered wondering if God would ever be willing to look past that internal ugliness and love me anyway. Without realizing it, my lifelong response to the black spot was to build an emotional barricade around myself to keep others at a distance so they could never get close enough to me to see that black spot and reject me. Even the extra weight I carry that I I just cannot seem to conquer became part of 
my protective gear, a physical barricade to accompany the emotional barricade. You know what? Barricades are tricky, though. Once they're erected, they're very hard to take down. And they may protect us from things that can hurt us, but they will always keep out those who might love us. My barricade even kept me from perceiving God's love for me. Until God healed my brokenness, I had never realized that the operatic world was where I received the affection and encouragement I never got as a child. People appreciated my vocal efforts, convincing me that my life had meaning. When God suddenly closed the door on my operatic career and pointed me toward itinerant ministry that actually took several years to materialize, no wonder it felt like I was dying. The affirmation of my value was suddenly gone. In contemplating the black spot that no longer exists, I came across a scripture verse that really surprised me, a scripture verse I had never noticed before. The King James Version of Song of Solomon 4.7 says, There is no spot in thee. It really says spot. I believe that God, in a moment of profound compassion and mercy, not only healed the pain of a lost career, but healed the deep wounds I have carried in my soul since childhood. Wounds that drove me to need that music career in the first place. I have come to the conclusion that any voice telling you that you are damaged or defective, that your existence has no value, or that there is nothing in you worthy of being loved is a lie from the pit of hell and don't you believe it those lies are spoken by the enemy of our souls who is always 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 on the prowl to latch on to our weakest most vulnerable places in order to twist and deform our self-image with the intent of destroying our relationship with god and what better way what better way to destroy our relationship with God than to try and convince us we are so deeply flawed that not even God Almighty can love us? Psalm 139, 13 and 14 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The Hebrew word for created doesn't mean just made. It conveys the joy and pride that comes from an exquisite, hand-carved treasure. And each of us is an exquisite treasure, created and carved by the hand of Almighty God. And you guys, a perfect God is not capable of creating a soul that is defective. When we can't seem to recover from a loss, no matter how hard we try, it may be because that person or that 
thing or that the or that expectation has become more meaningful, more powerful and more important in our lives than God. We are so determined to have absolutely everything exactly the sa- the way we want it that in our obsession we may even be willing to hang on to the pain associated with the loss with a, we may even be willing to hang on to pain associated with the loss as the last thing that connects us to that which we're convinced we cannot live without aw tozer said the reason why so many are still troubled still seeking still making little forward progress because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We are still giving orders and interfering with God's work within us. And perhaps God can use us to our full potential only when we become willing to let go of our own self-interest so he doesn't have to constantly fight for our attention. For whosoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And I am here to testify that is a true statement. At a recent dinner party when I shared about those shoes disintegrating out from underneath me, a friend casually said, well, maybe those shoes represented something you no longer needed. Well, that statement was so rich with insight and wisdom that I did what any refined dinner party hostess would do, and I burst into tears at the dinner table. You see, my friend had absolutely no idea that the only time I had ever worn those shoes were for professional operatic performances in New York City. The wild, wild coincidence of my opera shoes literally disintegrating seconds before taking my first breath for ministry is an object lesson I will never forget. Those shoes were a metaphor for letting go of who I used to be. Part of the process of becoming who God wants us to be includes letting go of the past which is so hard, letting go of our expectations and letting, letting go of what we really no longer need, whether that's something as simple as a pair of shoes or as profoundly complex as a protective barricade. Getting rid of the old debris we tend to carry gives God more space to move in our lives and to heal old wounds that are so deeply embedded we may not even be aware they exist. And when we have come to the end of our ability to fix our own lives, when we have come to the end of ourselves, that place is where our Savior patiently waits for us. Because Jesus is the only one capable of healing wounds that are too deep for us to reach.
Church, what a gift. Can we just thank Marsha one more time? Thank you. Just amazing, and uh, the gift of music and your talent is obviously uh, just huge. It's incredible uh, the way you sing and the way you minister through your voice, but also just who you are. Uh, you guys need to know every time we talk on the phone or if we email or however we communicate, uh, she is who she is, uh, just truly a wonderful daughter of God. And anyone else feel like the Lord was speaking to you today? Um, big time. I, I was like, how did you know, Marcia? <laughs> like, thank you for this counseling session. I really appreciate it. But uh, we do want to um, receive at this time a love offering uh, for Marcia. And uh, this is her only source of income. Uh, this is what she does for a living. Uh, goes from congregation to congregation, like she said, all over the country. And um, this is her gift to the world. And we want to uh, respond to that today by uh, giving to her and encouraging her. I always feel like LifeSpring is that place. I, I've always uh, felt like LifeSpring is a wonderful place for anyone like Marcia to come that she would feel encouraged not just by the things we say to her, but also blessed by the gifts that we give to her. And there's several different ways that you can give. Um, if you're writing a check, it's to be written out to Master's Image. Uh, if you're going to use your phone and, and do a gift that way uh, with a credit card, you'd go to mastersimage.com slash donate. Uh, there's instructions there, and you would designate your gift uh, for Marcia. Um, and while we receive uh, the love offering, uh, I've actually asked Marcia if she'd sing us one more song. So would you invite Marcia back up to the stage?
I had an extraordinary experience, and I can't remember if I had had this experience um, before the last time I was with you, or has it been since then? But I wanted to share with you some film footage, just, just a couple of minutes. I sponsor two little girls in the Dominican Republic, and I actually traveled there not only to meet my girls, but to check into this company with whom, um, through whom I sponsor, and I was blown sideways. So I'd love to share some footage with you, and then I'll come back up and talk. The Dominican Republic is one of those countries that is a tourist destination for a lot of Americans. There is so much beauty in the tropical beaches and the landscape, and even in the architecture of the old colonial city. But when you travel off the beaten path where most of the people actually live, the contrast is really startling. As we traveled through distressed areas, I tried to imagine what it would be like to live in that kind of poverty, especially without having any hope that my circumstances would ever change. In one of the communities we visited, we drove as far as our vehicle could go, and then we walked the rest of the way over a rocky, steep path. That little community tucked away in the countryside had no access to water. And to get water, they had to walk that same hill we had just traveled. And those who retrieve water can only bring back to their families what they can carry, usually in large buckets balanced on their heads. After seeing that, I realized that I take clean, uncontaminated water totally for granted. But for most of the areas we visited, water is a very precious commodity they just don't have. And Food for the Hungry is working very hard to make easily accessible water available to those communities. Today I had the privilege of meeting two little girls that I sponsor in the La Mina community in Dominican Republic. As it turns out, both of these little girls are best friends and live across the street from each other. I completely fell in love with them both. The reality is, I am now a part of their lives and they are a part of mine, and we have a relationship. It was hard to leave them behind knowing how much poverty is impacting their lives. But I'm really looking forward to communicating with them, hearing more about their dreams for the future, and walking alongside them on their life's journeys. In sponsoring a child like Noelia or Clara Inez, you are not only helping that child, but you're helping that child's family and the entire community where that child lives with the hope that the community can be transformed so that sponsorship is no longer even needed. One of the most rewarding experiences of my life has been sponsoring children and being part of a process that is changing lives on such a deep level. How many of you believe in hope? 
I know I do, and I was surprised to learn that hope is a concept so important to God that we understand that the word hope appears in Scripture 129 times. And I, I shared this story with you before, but it had such a huge impact on me that I want to share it again. I, I got to see hope in action in the life of the first little girl I sponsored. She lived in the slums uh, outside of Nairobi, and she wanted to be a baby nurse. But at 12 years old, she'd never even seen a school. And that's when I first understood the insidious nature of true poverty. Poverty we will never see in this country. It robs children of their hope and their dreams for their future. And one day I got a letter from Anna. Anna was her name. She said, I'm the luckiest girl in the world. And I thought, oh, why? She said a school had been built in her area and she had homework. She was playing catch-up. And the last letter I got from Anna after she was out of the program and able to support herself, she told me that she had received an invitation to become an OBGYN nurse, a baby nurse at the largest hospital in Nairobi. You guys, if you have ever wondered if sponsorship is a real thing, if you ever doubted these companies that sponsor children, I was right there with you. And then this happened. And then my trip to Dominican Republic to visit my girls. Sponsorship is very, very real. And by a monthly sacrifice of $38, you can change the life of a child forever. And when I first heard that sponsorship was $38, I thought, holy doodle, I can't do that. Until I realized $38 is what I would save if I stopped going through Burger King for my Diet Coke every afternoon. And $38 is dinner for two at Applebee's once a month. It can be done. This is a little, oh, sweet, little nine-year-old boy in Dominican Republic, and his name is Darlin, like darling, only without the, the G. And Darlin needs a sponsor. Um, there's, there are forms inside these packets for you to fill out and leave with me. And um, I'm, I'm praying that the Lord is speaking to your heart right now and that you will want to join me in trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the life of a child who needs you very much. So I'm going to be out at the table out there, the Food for the Hungry table, and as I said before, and I'll say it again, I certainly don't want to put a guilt trip on anyone. But if you happen to be having one, would you take it to the table out there? (laughs) Thanks, everybody.